Today, we're going to be talking about the queen of mystery herself, Miss Agatha Christie, and one of her most famous novels. Agatha Christie, and her full name is actually Dame Agatha Mary Clarissa Christie, was born September 15, 1890, in Devon, England, and she died January 12, 1976, in Wallingford, Oxshire. She's most famous for her detective novels, and I learned that she was a playwright, which is something I feel like I should have known, but didn't. And their books have been translating into about 100 languages, and it's estimated she sold over 1 million copies. And I'm sure that number is still rising. I mean, she sells probably hundreds of copies a day. Her first novel was published in 1920 and was titled The Mysterious Affair at Styles. In her lifetime, she's published about 75 novels. And, that, and on top of that, like, amazing feat, usually they fall on the bestsellers list which is even more impressive, and usually it's the international bestseller list. So, Queen is just going <laughs> for it all the time. But today we're going to talk about her most famous and critically acclaimed novel, And Then There Were None. The novel was initially published in 1939, and the title underwent many changes, to say the least. In the UK, when it was first released, it was called Ten Little and You Can. Look up what the third word is. I do not want to say that. But American audiences did not like that title, and there was a big backlash about the use of that word. I'm sure you can look up the word. I'm not going to say it. Then it was changed to Ten Little Indians, and then it was changed into Ten Little Soldiers, and then finally the title landed on, and then there were none, which now has become the standard title for and most well-known title. But if you actually find old copies, especially first editions, and even just from a couple years ago, you can find either the original, original name or you can actually find Ten Little Indians or Ten Little Soldiers on the title of the books, which I do think is pretty interesting because now they kind of are like artifacts and they go for a lot of money because they're not in circulation anymore. It's kind of like um, baseball cards in a way or um, what's something else people collect? I don't know, like Pokemon cards or something or sports, but really once it's not in production anymore. It kind of gets harder and harder to find them, especially books can be very hard to pre preserve. Um, but actually, some you can find uh, actually Ten Little Soldiers very easily. I once saw it in my library. The copy is actually Ten Little Soldiers. They have a copy of it, and then they also have it, and then there were none. But it kind of shows how titles can change, and also kind of like cultural differences that Americans were like, Americans were like, no, we're not going to do this. And um, so I just always thought that was very interesting that the title underwent so many changes. And all of them were, like, very, like, within the first couple years of it being published. It was very, like, fast changes that happened. Usually, it takes, like, a very long time. And they were like, nope, we're just going to change it right away, which is good. Because I don't think anyone liked the first title. And they shouldn't like the first title. But that was what it was called. And luckily, it was changed to the other titles. And then, originally, down, then there were none which I think is a better title for it. So Christie describes And Then There Were None as her most challenging book to write, and I can see why. The book keeps you guessing at all times, and a single turn of the page can change everything you thought you knew. There's this account on YouTube, Emmy Reads, and she actually did a whole video trying to solve the mystery, and it was pretty good. I highly recommend watching it. The novel opens with the nursery rhyme, and the nursery rhyme is called Ten Little Indians, 
And then now, and as the novel goes on, you see each person on the island gets killed the same way that the boys in the nursery rhyme are. So the rhyme goes, Ten little Indian boys went out to dine, one choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little Indian boys sat up very late, one, one overslept himself, and then there were eight. Eight little Indian boys traveling in Devon, one said he'd stay here, and then there were seven. Seven little Indian boys chopping up sticks, one chopped himself in half, and then there were six. Six little Indian boys playing with a hive, a bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little Indian boys going in for law, one gone chancery, and then there were four. Four little Indian boys go out to sea, a red herring swallows one, and then there were three. Three little Indian boys walking in the zoo, a bear hugged one, and then there were two. Two little Indian boys sitting in the sun, one got frizzled up, and then there was one. One little Indian boy left all alone, he went out and, and hanged himself, and then there were none. So the story begins with a group of people being invited to Soldier Island, which is owned by Mr. Owen. And the guests are Judge Lawrence Wargrave, Vera Coth Claythorne, Philip Lumbar, Dr. Edward George Armstrong, William Henry Bloor, Emily Brent, General John Corden MacArthur, and Anthony Marston. On the island, there's also two other residents, Thomas Rogers, the butler, and Ethel Rogers, his wife. When the group arrives, they are having drinks, and the voice um, comes over the speaker and accuses each of them of murder. Wargrave does what he does constantly in this book and holds a court session for everyone to explain their accusations. And as the stories are shared, each guest has an excuse for the allegations. So the group learns that they were invited to the island under false pretenses because what are the odds that all these people have been accused of murder and they're all here? But then the first person dies, Anthony Marston, and just like the fir boy, first boy in the nursery rhyme, he chokes and dies due to his drink being poisoned. Everyone wants to leave in the morning, and Vera of Mystic Chaos is the one that realizes Mace, uh, Marston died the same way as the first boy in the nursery rhyme. The crew also learns that Miss Rogers died overnight. They were all in shock to see the two little soldier figurines are missing, marking the two deaths. At this point, everyone's freaking out, but they can't leave due to a storm. Just their luck. Bloor and Lumbar search the island to see if there's anyone else, but they don't find anyone, and it's clear that it is only this group of people on the island. However, MacArthur keeps disappearing, raising everyone's suspicions. When Armstrong is sent to go find him, he discovers he's dead, marking MacArthur as the third death on the island in such a short time. It's only been like a night. This cause of his death is due to blunt force trauma when a life preserver was hit, hit him in the head. It doesn't take long for another murder to happen this time. It is Rogers who is dead due to being hit in the head with an axe when he's chopping wood. After all this chaos, everyone starts to calm down a little bit and they realize they need to eat. Vera and Miss Brent make breakfast because there are no servants left being both Ethel and Thomas had died. Each breakfast, when some, after breakfast, when everyone is cleaning the table, they come back into the room to find Emily Brent is dead. There's a bee flying around the room, but it is determined that she died due to be poisoned by a syringe. So it's not a bee sting. It was she was poisoned, but may look like a bee sting. Orgrave continues to be the voice of reason for all that Ming suggests that any and all dangerous objects that could be used to harm are locked away. Everyone agrees, and when Lombard goes to get his revolver, it is missing. 
Wargrave is in the next victim, and he is shot in the head. Lumbar at night hears something in his room. Paranoid, he wakes everyone else up, and they notice that Armstrong is missing. Because of this, everyone believes that Armstrong is the murderer, and between this mob mentality and paranoia, they become unraveled, and they fear for the worst. Learning from past mistakes, the remaining guests go outside to spend the morning thinking that they will survive because it's such an open place and they can view anyone coming up to them. No one wants to go inside, but eventually Bloor is hungry and decides to go inside where, get this, he's crushed by a bear statue. A bear statue. They continue to walk around the island and now they find Armstrong is dead and they are starting to get killed and they're starting to get killed quicker and quicker as their paranoia grows. The walls are closing in on them. And now there's only two left, Vera and Lombard. Their suspicion about each other hits a peak and Vera actually shoots shoots him with Lombard's revolver. So actually shoots him with his own gun. She walks back into the house and in her room she sees a noose hanging with a chair under it and she hangs herself. The story doesn't end there. We actually have an epilogue and the investigators tell it. Then... The reader is greeted with a letter by Wargrave as he explained his obsession with justice. He goes on to write about how, as a child, he used to kill animals, which is the sign of a serial killer. Uh, there are said to be nine early warning signs of a serial killer when they are kids. Antisocial behavior, arson, torturing of small animals, poor family life, childhood abuse, substance abuse, voyeurism, intelligence, and shiftlessness. Wargrave states that he never wanted to hurt anything or anyone innocent. That's why he became a judge. But when he learned he was dying from a medical condition, he decided he wanted to commit the perfect murder and murder people that had murdered others, whether intentionally or not. Some people, when they learned that they were dying, wanted to travel the world. Wargrave wanted to murder, and I guess he had a different bucket list than the rest of us. Wargrave actually survived his first death, by tricking Dr. Armstrong into thinking that if they faked Wargrave's death, it would bring the murderer out because the murderer would be like, oh, well, this wasn't me. Like, what could have happened? Is there someone else? And that backfires on Armstrong because he's dead and he was killed. And then after Vera killed herself, he then killed himself too, completing in his eyes the perfect murder. I know this is an extended summary, and I usually don't do summaries this long and jump straight into thoughts and analysis, but this book has so many characters and moving parts, I feel like it's necessary to talk about it. The book plays on paranoia and the idea that nothing is how it seems. Wargrave the entire time is the voice of reason. He's the one that tries to keep everyone calm, yet he's the mastermind behind this whole thing. We are meant to trust Wargrave because he's a judge, and when you think of judges, you never think that they would do such a heinous act because all throughout history, they are the pillars of what is right and wrong in society. They are the ones that rule on laws and things like that and sentence people or find them innocent or guilty, uh, of course, with the help of a jury. But just a judge has always been that like person in a courtroom that has the ultimate respect of what's right and wrong. Wargrave stabs us in the back just like how he did for the others. As the book progresses and the body count increases, we can feel the walls are closing in on us because we are getting... Closer to learning who the murderer is just of the rug pulled out from under us. Not the whole book. It really points to Lombard being it. His revolver goes missing. He's always the last one in the room. He goes to search for people. He hears someone in his bedroom. And when it's just him and Vera, we follow Vera most of the time. So we truly believe that 
Lumbar is it because she believes that lumbar is it. And so we can feel the walls closing in on us. And when we finally get that the Lombard's dead, we learned it wasn't even him that was doing this. Christy is a genius with this book because with one wrong slip up, the whole story unravels and it's exposed too quickly. It's all about timing and she does it perfectly. Everything in this book is about timing and it, it has to be perfect with something like this. Like same with the Sherlock Holmes series that I plan to talk about in the future. A good murder mystery and a good story about crime is all about timing. It's like comedy. Comedy is all about timing. So is mystery books. As the murders speed up and the walls are closing on us, and then even when we're outside, we have this anxious feeling of what is going to happen because now people are even dying outside the house. No one witnesses it. You can't be alone with people. Like who, who can you be alone with? Who can you be? Who can you trust? We are rooting for Vera. She's the one we follow the most. And when we finally think we're out of the woods and she can move on from this journey and she can leave the island, she ends her life. It would make us, the reader, question whether... It makes us, the reader, question if all this is worth it. She fought tooth and nail. And we fought tooth and nail to see Vera survive only for her to die at her own hands. We feel defeated at the end and we learn that no matter what, she was... She would have been killed because Wargrave is still alive. And we know she's going to die because she was the 10th person. They all followed that rhyme. So it's only, it, it, it's like prophecy. She has, she has to do this in a way for the story to be complete. Using the nursery rhyme to foreshadow the end adds another level to the novel. Because again, we know what's going to happen. We just don't know when and who it will be. And that is what kills us. That's what makes us this paranoid feeling. And Christy knows that. And she's festering on this idea of humans that we want to trust people and we want to root for people. And we think of good and evil only for us that we know in the end we're not going to win. And Vera's not going to win, but we're still rooting for it. It's kind of like childish for us to even think that she could possibly have won. But we do at the end of the day. We think she's going to win and she doesn't. So... When you look at the nursery room again, it's 10 little Indian boys went out to dine, one choked his little self, and then there were nine, Anthony Marston. Nine little Indian boys sat very late, one overslept himself, and then there were eight, Ethel Rogers. Eight little Indian boys traveling in Devon, one said he'd stay there, and then there were seven, General John Gordon MacArthur. Seven little Indian boys chopping up sticks, one chopped himself in half, and then there were six, Thomas Rogers. Six little Indian boys playing with a hive, a bumblebee stung one, and then there were five, Emily Brent. Five little Indian boys going in for law, one got in chancery, and then there were four, Judge Lawrence Orgrave. Four little Indian boys going out to sea, a red heron swallowed one, and then there were three, Dr. Edward George Armstrong. Three little Indian boys walking in the zoo, a bear hugged one, and then there were two, William Henry Bloor. Two little Indian boys sitting in the sun, one got fizzled up, and then there were one, Philip Lombard. One little Indian boy looked all alone, he went out, out, he went out and hanged himself, Vera Claythorne. And then there were none.